Good morning. It is a privilege and an honor to be here with you. I appreciate the invitation to come and share with you and to, to be a part of your services for a couple days this week. I, um, <clears throat> this is probably the, the last place I would have expected to be some years ago. I grew up in the home of a pastor. Because of that, I wanted no part of pastoral ministry. I went to college for music, and that was my pursuit. And over the course of the years, God got a hold of me, and so this is where I'm at today. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to share with you today. Over the course of ministry, I've developed two primary interests. One is the book of Revelation, and the other is Christian apologetics, or the defense of the Christian faith. And so I'm going to share with you this morning from Revelation chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me? Revelation chapter 8 will begin in verse 2. And if you could humor me today, in, in the congregation I pastor, we stand when we read the Scripture. In ancient days, when a king proclaimed an edict or spoke to his subjects, they stood in his presence. And so if you would humor me, would you stand with me this morning as we, as we read God's Word. Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Please be seated. I am convinced over the course of the years, and I'm increasingly convinced as time goes by, that at times we make revelation harder than it needs to be. I realize that what I've read to you from chapter 8 is not what we typically want to, to study and to understand from chapters 8 and chapter 9 in Revelation. We read about seven, seven angels here given seven trumpets. And as they sound their trumpet, we see the work of God taking place on the earth. And we're not going to get into the specifics today of what those works of God are. The point is the point of origin, the place of origin for those works of God. I am, I am convicted that if we read the book of Revelation with an open mind, and if we read it looking to understand, rather than to cast our elaborate timelines and all of our speculation and everything else, if we read it looking for understanding, there are places in this book that are self-explanatory. I have ten of them marked in my Bible. We're not going to talk about all of them today. We're going to talk about one. But there are a number of places that are self-explanatory, and as we look at the things that explain themselves, allowing them to speak for themselves rather than making them more complicated than they need to be, that provides a framework for us to understand the book of Revelation. Everything that we interpret, if we understand what speaks for itself, everything else we interpret must fit within that framework. We see some examples of it in the, in the chapters leading up to chapter 8. We see in chapter 1 an example of that. First of all, in the first verse, <clears throat> John tells us the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the thing, things that must soon take place. He made it known. Now the Greek word that translates there to made it known means to show by sign or symbol. 
We hear the age-old debate whether we take Revelation symbolically or literally. If you take the first verse literally, then you must take the rest of the book symbolically. Because that's what the first verse says. Now you could say that's a stretch. That's not so self-explanatory. Maybe it's not. Look with me at verse 9 in chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on an island called Patmos. Now there are those who push a number of things in Revelation off to the end of time. There are things that are going to take place when Jesus comes back. John says, I, John, your brother and partner. Partner in what? In tribulation? That means it was taking place then. In tribulation? And the kingdom? That means John was already their partner in the kingdom of God in 96 AD as he he sat in prison on the Isle of Patmos. So I, John, your brother and your partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus was on the island called Patmos. We go further in the, the end of the first chapter. We read in verse 20 the words of Jesus that said, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We don't have to guess as to what that is. Jesus tells us that what he's writing is to the church. In chapter 5, we read in chapter 4, a vision of the throne room of God. In chapter 5, in verse 5, John said, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so we read in the book of Revelation, great visions, of of terrifying beasts and all kinds of fanciful creatures. But at the end of the day, the power that we find to reveal the mind of God, to explain to us and to, uh, to give us the knowledge and understanding of what God is doing comes not from those great beasts and not from those powerful creatures. It comes from a lamb. The greatest power known to mankind is not the power of the Russian army or the Ukrainian army as the case may be. The greatest power known to mankind is not the nuclear weapons that we have developed today. The greatest power known to mankind is not the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in Washington. The greatest power known to mankind in the history of all creation is the power of a lamb. We don't have to wonder about that. We don't have to guess as to the power of the Lamb of God because it tells us that here. And then we find ourselves in chapter 8 with another instance of something that explains itself. Now you notice I didn't read verse 1. And maybe I diverge a little bit from some of those who have been my mentors over the course of time. We read in chapters 6 and 7 about seven seals that are opened. The one seated on the throne uh, who who is God held a scroll in his right hand, and there were seven seals in the scroll. And we read about the seven seals being opened, and I've, I've read over the course of the years a number of different interpretations about chapter 8, verse 1, where the seventh seal was opened, and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Let's not complicate this any more than we need to. On the seventh day, God rested because His work was done. The seventh seal was opened, and there was nothing more to be said about that vision. And so there was silence in heaven because the vision had come to an end. We don't need to complicate that any more than necessary. 
How can a new vision begin in a seventh seal? Seven is completion, and so the first vision of Revelation is complete. And the next vision begins in verse 2 when John says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. This angel would have been in a high priestly role. He was clothed as a high priest. He took the golden censer, which would have been the responsibility of the high priest. Now, when we read this vision... We want to know what's taking place when we get down to verse 6. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. In verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And as we understand the symbols, we understand the work of God in judgment over the things that man has created, over the kingdoms and over the political systems of man. But that's not our purpose here today. Don't miss what it explicitly says in Revelation. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before God. It goes on to tell us in verse 5, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We live in a world where everyone is jockeying for position and power. They want influence and they want authority. We see it taking place in the Ukraine today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We see it as our politicians work to overtake one another today. We see it all around us. Everybody wants power and everybody wants authority. And we want to know how long will God allow these things to take place? When will He step in and overcome the issues that we're dealing with in this world? Here's when he'll do it. He'll do it when the saints get serious about prayer. No matter what we read in chapter 8 and chapter 9, no matter how we interpret the the things that take place as a result of the sounding of the seven trumpets, they always 100% of the time originate from the altar of heaven. The place where the incense is offered. It tells us here he was given incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. We read back in chapter 5. We read back in chapter 5 that when the Lamb had taken the scroll in verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We see throughout Revelation consistently that this incense offered on the golden altar represents the prayers of the saints. And so the altar where this sacrifice is made is the same place from which the fire of heaven becomes a reality on earth. And so we wonder sometimes how God is going to deal with the great troubles and the great turmoil that we see in this world. It may well be that God is wondering how we're going to deal with it. God is wondering when we're going to get serious about His prescribed method for the issues that we face and the things that we deal with in the world. It's interesting that in the church, when we put activities together and when we do outreach projects and other things, people flock to those things. We can't wait to take part in those things. But when we call the church together for prayer... It's difficult to find the commitment of God's people. My friends, prayer is not preparation for the work of the church. Prayer is the work of the church. 
The work that we do begins and ends with our commitment to God and our desire to seek His kingdom first and His righteousness because Jesus told us that if that is, if that is our goal, if that is our pursuit, all those other things will be put in place. Not by us, but by God. All those other things will be taken care of in the power of heaven. If we're willing to seek that power. Our society revolves around power and who has the most my friends, regardless of who rises to power in our society, in any society, it's the Lamb who holds the power. And so it's the Lamb to whom we must go when we face the trials and the difficulties of life and the turmoil of this fallen world. We read here in Revelation, not a fanciful vision of things to happen at the end. We read the prescription we read the recipe to make God's power a reality on this earth. We read what it takes from the saints, the people of God, to make His righteousness and His power a reality in this sin-stricken world. And it begins with our prayer. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that when the church comes together, that's the first order of business. He said in 1 Timothy in the second chapter, First of all, I urge then that prayer and supplication be made for kings and all who are in authority, that we might lead peaceable and quiet lives as is pleasing to God. Paul, in giving Timothy instruction on worship, said the first thing you must do is be about prayer. Set yourselves to prayer. Because what we do as Christians is not primarily about humanity. It's about God's saving work in humanity. It begins and it ends with Him. It is His work that we desperately need in this world today. And so we find here in Revelation what it takes to experience the power of God in prayer. What it takes to make the power of heaven a reality on earth and the culture of heaven a reality within the church. It begins with understanding that prayer is powerful. And that powerful prayer is always an offering to God. Scripture repeatedly portrays prayer as an offering of incense that is made to God. As a means of offering ourselves to Him. We read it back in chapter 5. The bowls full of incense which are offered along with the prayers of the saints. We read here that the altar where the incense is offered is the place of the prayers of the saints. Back in 1 Kings in chapter 8 and verse 54 when Solomon after having built the temple prayed to God and asked God to bless the temple and dedicated that temple as a place of God's presence. We read in verse 54 that as Solomon finished offering all his prayer and plea to the Lord that the temple was filled with fire in the presence of God. But notice what the text says. As Solomon finished offering all his prayer to the Lord. The prayer of Solomon was an offering to God. In Psalm 32, in the sixth verse, we read, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Prayer is important, but my friends, prayer is not simply another activity that we take part in. Prayer is not simply a ritual that we carry out. Prayer is an offering to God. It is us placing ourselves on the altar before Him. Placing our sacrifice squarely on the altar. Asking God to use us to the greatest extent to deal with the issues of this world. We're not really praying 
until we've offered ourselves up for God's response. It's not enough for us to give God our laundry list of all the things that need to be done, of all the things that we hope to see, a list of the sick people that need to be healed. We certainly ought to pray about those things. However, we've not prayed in earnest until we've offered ourselves up before God in prayer. Until we've given ourselves to Him. Prayer is always an offering. What sacrifice are we willing to make in prayer? I hear people in the church today talk about the idea that I can pray wherever I'm at. I can pray as I'm driving to work in the morning. I can pray while I'm doing other things. And we certainly should. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Jesus said men ought always to pray. But Jesus also took time away from everything else, retreated by Himself and, and prayed. He also sacrificed in prayer. He sacrificed His sleep in prayer. Entire nights. Yes, we can pray while we're doing any number of other things, but are we willing to sacrifice in prayer? To purposely set other things aside. Things that are not inherently bad things. Are we willing at times to set them aside so that we can dedicate ourselves to prayer? Believing that God will move through the prayers of the saints. That the fire of heaven comes to earth as we offer ourselves as sacrifices in prayer. You see, that's what the offering is. It's an offering of ourselves. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or some translations say reasonable service. Paul considers it absolutely reasonable to offer ourselves as a sacrifice in prayer. We wonder when we see the things taking place in Washington, issues like what we've seen with the Disney Corporation over the past weeks. How do we respond to such things? How can we become more active in the political process? How can we make our voice heard? My friends, our voice needs to be heard in heaven. I don't know if you've noticed or not over the last 50 years, it honestly hasn't made a lot of difference how our voice has been heard in this country and the politics of it. Our voice needs to be heard in heaven. I'm not telling you not to be involved in the political process. However, primarily our voice must be heard in heaven. We cannot overcome these issues. They're a result of the fallenness of this world. They're a result of the fact that sin tyrannizes the hearts of man. The place where this is overcome is from heaven, from the throne of God. The answers come from the throne of God. The scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne was found in the throne room. It wasn't found among man. It was found in the throne room of God. It was from that place that John receives these great visions of the work that God wants to accomplish. God is not going to force Himself on us. Even though we call ourselves the church, that we profess Christianity, God is not going to force His work on us. He's not going to force revival on you. He's just not going to do it. It's a result of surrender through prayer. And I would point out that 100% of the time throughout history, dating even back to the Old Testament, revival began 
with a devout commitment to prayer. When God's people got serious about prayer. But He's not going to force that on us. It's a result of our surrender to Him in prayer. Us offering ourselves for His purpose and for His work. Dennis Kinlaw wrote that when Christ lives in us without hindrance and we live in Him, He enables us to do things that can only be explained in this way. Christ reaching the world through us. We live in a world that is in desperate need of the presence of God. The fire from heaven that comes from this altar. It's in desperate need of the righteousness of God to overcome the sin that we see in this world. Righteousness will never be coerced. God will never force that on us. If righteousness could be forced on man, then hell would be the most righteous place in existence, wouldn't it? If it could be coerced, hell would be the most righteous place in existence. We cannot force those around us to become Christians. We cannot legislate it through our government. But we can petition heaven for the power of the Holy Spirit, for a fresh anointing of the Spirit, so that the work of God is not carried out in human power with human authority, with our limited resources and understanding, but so that the work of God is carried out in the power of God, according to the ways of God. Prayer is an offering of ourselves. What kind of offering is acceptable to God? It's no mistake that we read about prayer coming from the golden altar of heaven. Offerings that were made on the golden altar in the Old Testament were offerings of incense and oil that were mixed in a specific way. They were pure. They were done according to the ways of God. He told them to mix that incense and that, uh, that oil and not to use it for anything else. They weren't allowed to make it in their homes. They weren't allowed to use it for any other purposes. It was to be used for God alone. This is what the Bible means when it talks about purity of heart. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, He's talking about a oneness within our heart. He's talking about the idea that there are no impurities there. Uh, an example would be if you buy a bottle of water. Now I understand. I've seen the news about the impurities in bottled water. But ideally, there's supposed to be only one thing in that bottle. Water. When we talk about purity in a biblical context, that's what we're dealing with is a oneness. When the Bible talks about purity of heart, it's talking about a oneness in the pursuit of our heart. It doesn't mean that we have to put off every emotion that we have, that we have to put off every hobby that we have. It means that in those things, we have one pursuit, and that pursuit is Christ. The offerings made on the altar in the Old Testament were pure offerings. The offerings made today must be made in purity with a wholehearted pursuit of Jesus Christ. We offer our prayers at times hoping that God will do what we ask Him to do. And too many times we discount the possibilities of God working in a greater way. We, uh, our congregation just lost the chairman of our church council a couple days ago. He was, uh, he was our chairman. He was one of my best friends. We've, we shoot trap together. We've shot for years every week. And we've prayed for his healing for some weeks now. He was diagnosed with liver cancer six or seven weeks ago. And he passed away a couple days ago. There, there are some who would say, well, you just didn't have enough faith. 
To say such a thing makes heaven nothing more than a consolation prize. Heaven is not a consolation prize. On this day, he's healed. My brother will be with you tonight. He and I have been, my sister, our youngest sister was, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer this past fall. Her days are limited. She's 32 and has a, a young daughter at home. And we've prayed for her healing. We've been holding prayer services and streaming them online, asking people to pray. There are people, she was a missionary for a few years. There are people from all over the world praying for her. If God chooses to take her home, make no mistake, she's healed. You see, we must recognize God's ways, that they're greater than our ways, that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that He is not subject to us. And prayer recognizes that. When we offer ourselves to God in prayer, we do so with a pure heart, seeking out God's purposes and God's ways, just as Jesus did when He prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, Your will be done. We must seek in purity the ways of God and the purposes of God. And I am the first to admit, I don't always understand them. I don't always see the whole picture. But God does. Sometimes we need examples of how to live. Sometimes some folks give us examples of how to die. And we need that too. But you see, we seek out God with pure hearts. With a oneness of heart. Seeking out His will and His ways above everything else. That's the kind of prayer we must offer. Powerful prayer is an offering a pure offering of our hearts, of our lives and our resources and our time to a God who wants to work in this world, to a God who wants to bring us revival, who wants to move in powerful ways. We also find that powerful prayer is offered not in our own power. It's offered through our high priest, Jesus Christ. The one who takes the golden censer and takes the coals from the altar and casts them to the earth would be the high priest that represents Jesus. We read in Hebrews in chapter 7 and verse 25, Consequently, He, being Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. We pray about the issues in this world and we wonder how long can they go on? Is God hearing my prayer? Make no mistake, my friends, at this very moment, Jesus Christ stands at the throne, in the throne room of heaven at the right hand of God making intercession for you and I. Making intercession for the needs that we have today in the church. For the sicknesses that we face and the difficulties and the troubles that must be overcome. Jesus Christ in this very moment is interceding for people around the world whose lives are on the line because of their faith in Christ. At this moment, Christ is interceding for the Christians who had to worship seven or eight hours ago in China in secret with pillows over the windows so that the government couldn't hear them singing praises to God. At this very moment, Christ is interceding for those in Iran and Saudi Arabia whose lives are on the line because their families desire to kill them because of their faith in Christ. Jesus Christ intercedes for them today. He stands before God on our behalf and we offer prayer through Him. That's why Scripture tells us to pray in the name of Jesus. 
Leonard Ravenhill said that one praying man stands as a majority with God. Today, God is bypassing men, not because they are too ignorant, but because they are too self-sufficient. Because they're not willing to offer themselves in surrender to God. In surrender to His purposes and to His ways. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will He do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. We hear so much today about the church being the hands and feet of Jesus, being the body of Christ, and we ought to be doing works in our communities that make us His hands and feet. And I don't deny that, but what about His voice? Who is going to be the voice of Jesus in this day? Who is going to be the voice of Jesus crying out for those who live in this sinful world and bear the message of the Gospel? Who is going to be the voice of Jesus petitioning heaven for the power of God in this world that desperately needs it? A body has more than simply hands and feet. The church must also be His voice. Proclaiming the gospel to a fallen world and standing as priests, lifting that fallen world to the throne of heaven. Seeking God's power in the lives that need it. There is power in the name of Jesus. Praying in His name is not simply saying in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayers. It's not a magic formula or an incantation. Praying in the name of Jesus provides a framework through which we can see our own desires. The purity of our hearts in the clearest light. It is a rallying point for faith. When Jesus sponsors a claim that we present before God, the answer is sure to be given. Here's the issue with praying in the name of Jesus. We are asking Jesus to sponsor those things we ask before God. Are the things for which we pray worthy of the name of Jesus? That's the issue. It's not a magic formula that we tack on to the end of our prayers. It's a measuring rod that helps to assess our motives and our desires in the things that we ask Christ. Are our prayers worthy of the name of Jesus? That's the issue that we face. Powerful prayer is offered in the name of Christ. And it's the kind of prayer that Jesus Himself will deliver to the throne of heaven as He intercedes for us. As He speaks with the Father on our behalf. When we offer ourselves on the throne of heaven, In the power of our high priest, then we find that the prayers of the saints bring fire from heaven. Notice we read here in Revelation, the angel angel was given a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. All that we have to offer is smoke. The real power comes in the fire that produces the smoke. We can't produce it ourselves. We can't do it on our own. There's a great difference between smoke and fire. There's a vast difference. We don't have to settle for a life of smoke. 
for a life that pays credence to God but lives without the power. It's the fire from heaven that makes a difference in this world. It's the fire from heaven that changes lives, that changes at times entire societies. Smoke doesn't bring light, but the presence of God's work, God's, <clears throat> excuse me, the presence of God's work is unmistakable when the coals of that altar take the form of fire and are cast down to earth by the high priest. The work of God is unmistakable. The work of God becomes a clear reality. And throughout history, the prayer brings the presence of God into our lives and into the world around us. It made the power of God a reality in the life of Abraham as he interceded for his nephew so that he might be delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we could believe that Lot was a righteous man and he went and lived in that unrighteous place. But it tells us when the angels got there, they found him sitting in the city gate. That's where the elders of the city sat. Not only had he gone there, he'd become one of them. It was through the prayers of Abraham and the intercession of Abraham that his nephew was saved. We see the prayers of Moses. Maybe one of the saddest accounts in all of Scripture is the last chapter in Deuteronomy where it talks about Moses taking his leave from the people of Israel and walking up onto Mount, uh, <clears throat> walking up onto Mount Nebo and taking a look out over the Promised Land. And he was taken from that place. What's interesting is there's no account of anybody interceding for Moses. He let his anger get out of hand. He'd, uh, he'd committed sin against God in the, before the people. And so he wasn't allowed to enter the Promised Land. Moses knew why. He told the people in Deuteronomy as he reviewed the law with them, it's because of you that I'll not enter the promised land. Over and over and over, Moses interceded for those people. He stood before God on behalf of the people. They weren't destroyed because of Moses' intercession. Yet as he took leave, there was nobody to intercede for him. But he did it nonetheless. Why? Because God's ways were higher than even his ways. We read about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, we read in Scripture. He wasn't inherently different than us, but he prayed. That's what separated Elijah. The fact that he prayed. We read on the day of Pentecost that they had prayed for days and preached for minutes and thousands were saved because fire fell from heaven in response to their prayers in response to a move of God. And we read it here from Christ in Revelation. Revelation, as much as anything, is the last word on the issues the church will face in this world. It's the last word on tribulation. It's the last word on God's kingdom. It's the last word on pastors and the relations to the church. And my friends, it's the last word on prayer. And the last word that we find on prayer in Scripture is that God will respond in power to the prayers of the saints. When God's people offer themselves before Him, when they set aside the programs and the structures and the policies and all the other things that are easy to get bogged down with in the church today, when they set them all aside and they seek out God first and foremost, God will respond. The last word on prayer tells us that it's God's desire to overcome the fallenness of this broken world, whether it be through the proclamation of the Gospel or whether it be through the judgment that we read about in chapters 8 and 9 and 10. 
God's desire is to work through the prayers of His people. And that's as true today as it's ever been. There is nothing that can stop the work of God when His people get serious about sustained prayer. I'm not talking about committing for a week or even a month. I'm talking about committing over the course of the years. A sustained commitment to prayer. John was in exile on the the Isle of Patmos when he was given the revelation. They thought they'd rid themselves of him. History would lead us to believe that they tried to kill the Apostle John and they couldn't. And so they sent him to exile. And his prayers brought the power of heaven to earth nonetheless. He said he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard a voice as of many waters. And he turned and he saw one who was like the Son of Man. He saw the risen Christ, the one with whom he had journeyed. The one who had entrusted the gospel message to him. The prayers of John, even in that place of exile, could not be stopped. And my friends, regardless of who stands against us today, the prayers of God's people cannot be stopped by a fallen world. Even the greatest opposition cannot stop the prayers of God's people. When we get serious about petitioning the throne of God, about boldly approaching the throne of grace, there are not enough demons in hell or principalities on earth to overcome the prayers of God's people. There is no defense against it. The question is, when will we get serious about prayer? When will we get serious about the fire of heaven becoming a reality on earth? God's told us what it takes. Christ has revealed it through what we read here in Revelation. When conflicts raged between good and evil in the days of Jesus and the days of the apostles, prayers went up from devout bands of Christians. All over the Roman Empire, as Christians faced persecution, they responded by offering prayer. The world produced massive engines of persecution. They raged against God's people, against those who who stood on the name of Christ. These were people who had no money. They had no authority. They had no political influence. But it's funny that they didn't live in a world that was plagued by anxiety or depression because of their plight. They didn't live in continual fear, wondering what was going to happen next. They didn't live in a panic induced by a 24-hour news cycle. How did they survive without such things? They prayed. They committed themselves to prayer. That's what separates them from the 21st century church and Western culture. I don't know where you're at today. I know by and large in the church in this nation, Prayer has been placed on the back burner. Here at the very beginning of this vision, we read and we see the judgment of God, and God's judgment is always an effort to bring people back to Him, to turn their attention back to Him. My friends, it begins with the prayers of the saints. It begins with what is offered on the altar of heaven. What are you offering today on the altars of heaven? We offer ourselves to our hobbies 
into our jobs, to our busyness, to our families at times, taking some of the greatest things that God has provided us and turning them into idols that distract us from the altar of heaven. What are you offering today? Maybe more importantly, we ought to ask, what are you willing to offer today? Revival is a result of a sustained commitment to prayer. A willingness to pray over and over and over again, even when it seems like we're not seeing results. Are you willing today to commit yourself to prayer in the long term? To make a commitment to stand before the throne of heaven consistently, consistently seeking the power of heaven. If we're not willing to start with such a commitment, then what we're seeking is not really revival. It always begins with a devout commitment to prayer by God's people. Would you be willing to make such a commitment today? Would you be willing to offer yourself on the altar of heaven? God, we're grateful. We're thankful for your word. We're grateful for the clarity that it gives us. We're thankful that even in scriptures where it's difficult for us to understand at times, you've provided us enough clarity to hear the message and to understand the emphasis that you're making. Lord, we pray today that you would simply call your people to prayer that you would help us to see the importance and that above everything else we would take hold of the we would take hold of the altar and that we would not let go until we've seen you move lord give us a passion like we've never known before and help us lord to pray the power of heaven to earth to see it become a reality not because of what we can do but because of because of our surrender and because of our willingness to offer ourselves. God, we pray that my weakness wouldn't keep us from hearing the Holy Spirit's voice on this morning. Speak to our hearts in these moments and help us to humbly respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.